You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning into the show. I am so excited to have everybody here today. And I get to start, which is always fun. And here's what I want you to do. I'm going to take you on a little picture journey, okay? I love picture I want journeys. you to imagine... Yeah, I want you to imagine you've been on a, a ship sailing across the ocean with the, the conquistadors no. from Spain. That sounds I, I know this is not something you, you would do. I'm sorry. This is this, you gotta terrible. go you gotta go on this journey with me, okay? But you're right, it does sound terrible for many reasons. One of which is you've been on this boat for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you you really don't have probably a whole lot of fresh food left by the end, but you finally reach the Caribbean and its beautiful sandy beaches. Do I have and scurvy? One thing, uh, probably. Damn. But you know, one way to cure that—they didn't know this at the time—but one way to cure that would be some fresh fruit. So, to your amazing luck, right there on the beach before your eyes is an amazing grove of crab apple trees, Ooh. and you're just thinking, like, okay. "Oh my gosh! I mean, what amazing luck!" Right? Can you imagine how good those apples would taste? After being on that boat for that whole time. I can't go a week without having a fruit. There you go. It would be amazing. Well, some of these conquistadors who got off these boats did eat those apples. And thereafter, the Spanish gave them a new name. They called them uh, Manzanita de la Muerta. Oh, somebody died. In other words, (laughs) the little apple of death. Oh, somebody died. Lots of people died. That's what I'm talking about this week. Uh, Manzanita de la Muerta. Uh, This is, uh, some people, in fact, did eat these when they got off the boat. And this fruit is one of the most deadly plants on earth. I'm talking about. That's karma. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm talking about the uh, mancanil. Mancanil is actually, uh, the name comes from Manzanilla, I, I think. Uh, but a manganillo is what this, this tree is called. Okay. And it, it, the name derives from the Spanish apple of death name, basically. Uh, this tree is fascinating, but I want to be very clear. It's also the source of a lot of myths and some exaggeration. So part of what I want to do is break down some of the truth versus the fantasy or the myths about this tree. Right. So we, do, we actually do know what these taste like. Uh, because over the years, people have been foolish enough to take a bite. I was of the about fruit. to say, you their death is in the name. Why are people well, eating okay. this? But of course, most people who ate these are people who had like just come to a new area, and they're like, "Oh, this looks great." They do look like uh, crab apples, and you're like, "Oh, well, I'll just I'll take a small bite, even right." And that's one of the ways you sort of try new foods: is take yeah. a small bite and see what happens. I do have one tingles. When you say crab yeah. apples, are you saying like? The little tiny ones that grow around here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So these are, um, you know, I don't know, maybe an inch or two around. Okay. They're, they're not like a big beefy apple. These right. are uh, fairly small. Like the lady but, not, but also not like the little teeny, teeny, tiny little ones. These are a, a decent size. 
we happen to know what these taste like because over the years people have been foolish enough to you know take a bite of the fruit i was able to find a quote online from a man named nicola streakland uh, who ate one back in the year 2000 so nice and modern uh, report here he said quote i rashly took a bite from this fruit and found it pleasantly sweet now i find that really su surprising because a lot of things that are um, poisonous as soon as you taste them you know you're in trouble like they have a very like bitter taste or something, which is sort of a warning that the alkalis and stuff in there give it that bitter taste and tell you that this is not something should be in your mouth. Right. Apparently, this fruit does not taste that way. It actually tastes sweet, which is really <laughs> bad, right? Yeah. So he takes this bite and uh, he said, uh, moments later, we noticed a strange peppery feeling in our mouths, which gradually progressed to a burning tearing sensation and a tightness of the throat the symptoms worsened over a couple of hours until we could barely swallow solid food because of the excruciating pain and the feeling of a huge obstructing pharyngeal lump that sounds I'm dreadful sorry. you ate something this is 2000 this is not this is relatively recent it is well documented that this is poison why are you okay you eat it, and then you don't go and get help? <laughs> oh, no, no. Just to be clear, this guy got help. Okay. But he's, he was describing, actually, for, I think, uh, some sort of medical journal after the fact what it felt like to eat it. That's why they have this guy's account. Okay. Uh, so he definitely oh, went fair. and got help. Good. Yeah. Good. So here's where we potentially encounter our first myth. Uh, Mr. Strickland lived to tell the tale. It sounded like it was pretty awful, but he did survive. The legends of this tree saying that eat, kind of say that eating the fruit is like always oh, just a horrible, fatal death. Uh, you know, people with severe reactions, I'm sure, have died from eating this. But it does not sound like it is as devastatingly poisonous as something like uh, like a destroying angel mushroom or something right. like that. Uh, so it's it causes a lot of you know intestinal distress, some burning and whatnot. I have no doubt that historically some people did die from eating this. I can tell you that there have been no modern cases of death on eating this fruit. And people definitely have eaten this fruit in modern times. So, you know, with a little bit of just minimal medical care, it sounds like people have a horrific experience, but, but pull through. Interestingly, uh, legend has it that no, none other than Ponce, uh, Ponce de Leon uh, was killed by the plant, but not by eating it. He was apparently struck by an arrow that had been uh, purposefully dipped in the sap oh. during a big battle in Florida. He fled to Cuba where he died from his wounds. But again, <laughs> let, me, let me be really clear. There is probably an exaggeration going on here as well. Being struck in the thigh by an arrow in the middle of a battle back in 1521 could likely be <laughs> fatal due to infection, no matter what the person dipped the tip of that arrow in, right? Yeah. You don't yeah. have any kind of antibiotics or anything. So he did eventually die from that wound. Especially uh, in Florida. I'm, yeah, and I'm sure that made it worse. Is that what really killed him? You know, it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. All right, Feels so like karma. That, had, that had the sap on it. Let's talk about the sap, all right? Because it isn't just the fruit of this tree that is toxic. Every part is toxic. You cannot touch the bark. You cannot touch the stems. You cannot touch the leaves. All right. Now we're all probably familiar with poison ivy. Well, a manganese will also cause like horrible 
contact dermatitis on your skin, blisters, the whole shebang. Uh, that's not all. There's also reports of the sap causing headaches, breathing problems, and temporary blindness. Now, I dug into this a little bit because you see this repeated. And I think what's actually going on when you talk about breathing problems and temporary blindness, a lot of websites make it sound like that is because they just came into contact with the sap and went temporarily blind. And I'm not buying that. What I, what I think if you read between the lines and dig deeper, these are people who were burning the plant using it as firewood. So if you're that. breathing in those fumes, they're getting into your eyes, they're getting into your lungs. Uh, this is really bad. But, you know, people make this out as this like death tree. The exact same thing happens with poison ivy. If you burn poison ivy, you're going to basically inhale that and you're going to blister the inside of your lungs. All kinds of horrible stuff happens. Do not ever put poison ivy on your campfire, okay? So kind of similar in that regard. Interestingly, because the trees get fairly good size, people often seek shelter under them from the sun or the rain. Now, let me be clear. Both of these things are bad. Uh, if you touch the leaves while sitting in the shade, that's obviously bad because you're going to get the contact dermatitis. But if you stand under this tree when it's raining, the water running off the leaves and hitting your skin will actually cause your skin to blister. Oh, that's terrible. Is that an uh, instant thing or is it? You know, I couldn't find information exactly on how long it takes. Knowing how most plants work, most things are not instant. Most reactions take a little time. Like, like poison ivy. Like poison ivy, yeah. Uh, but you definitely don't want to be under a manganil tree when it's raining. Now, uh, there are rumors as well out there that your skin can blister just being near one of these trees. But from what I can tell, this is purely a rumor attributed to this tree uh, that you should rightly steer clear of. People who you know were maybe near one are like, oh, I was, I was near that tree and I broke out. It's like, well, yeah, but you're probably also really close to like another tree where you actually, you know, brushed against got... it. Exactly. And they're just not realizing that they brushed against something and uh, that caused the problem. So that's probably where that sort of rumor comes from. Now, it's kind of like a porcupines can throw their quills. Type exactly. Of or the jumping choyo cactus that it can actually, you know, jump out at you. It's like, no, it can't. It can't do that. So there's lots, there's lots of rumors like that in nature. And this one certainly fits the bill for that. Uh, if somebody has a research paper they can share that says otherwise, I will gladly talk about it in a future show, but uh, it sounds a little uh, mythological. So now, unfortunately for this tree, while these mechanisms likely keep many animals from eating the plant, uh, humans have been none too fond of the tree. And so eradication, eradication efforts, uh, as you can imagine, have been fairly successful in a lot of places. And it's actually now an endangered species. Uh, so people are trying to preserve it as in a really amazing plant that has all these defense mechanisms. Uh, but there's not a whole lot of them out there anymore because... <laughs> People have said, you know what? I don't want this growing anywhere <laughs> near me. Uh, so it's a very cool uh, tree. It really is uh, one of the more deadly trees that's out there. I don't know that it's necessarily that much different than something like a poison ivy, which is an herb and a vine. Uh, but uh, it is super fascinating. Maybe it doesn't live up to some of the hype you'll find online about it. But it is certainly a fascinating tree nonetheless. Okay, Kirk, but I have a question. Shoot, go for it. So there must be some animals that can eat this without harm, because why would it be putting out 
a fancy, attractive, sweet fruit otherwise? That is a great, great question. I'm so glad you asked that. Uh, very perceptive there. Gold star, Victoria. Uh, Thank you. The, from what I've read, the, the fruit, uh, I believe, can travel from place to place. So I'm assuming it's a, a fruit that can float. Uh, like coconuts mm-hmm. will travel from island to island and stuff. So they may not I mean, be dependent on... mean, a coconut on, migrates. Yeah, you, you may not... They may not be dependent on animals. Am, animals. Animals. Animals, yeah. On animals to spread them, uh, like all fruits would. However, there are some reptiles. I believe there's a species, specific species of iguana that actually lives in these trees and will... Will eat the, fr- I believe, the fruits, if not the leaves, but they crawl around in the branches and have absolutely no reaction to them whatsoever. So it could be that there's something specific between certain animals that don't have the reaction. But you are, you're spot on that, like, it's really weird to create a fruiting body, which is usually to attract animals to come eat it and poop it out somewhere else, the mm-hmm. seeds. Um, having something that is so awful to ingest kind of goes against what we normally would think of as how plants operate. So it's a part of, I think, the fascination with discovering plants like this is you go, whoa, wait a minute, that's not what I expected. And that's kind of fun. That is really cool. Like, just so fascinating to see all the adaptations that plants can come up with. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what. Speaking of fascinating things, we're going to take a little break. And then, Rachel, I hope you're ready because you are going to be sharing something special with us. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. All right. We'll see you after the break. People have been writing really awesome reviews for us uh, over at Apple Podcasts. I wanted to read one for everybody. Uh, Jim Fitzsimmons, a.k.a. Dr. Dim, who is the host of uh, another podcast, Dimland Radio, Let's say he stopped by to give us a review. Thank you, Jim. He said, fun, informative, and sometimes disturbing. Excellent. The hosts work well together as they tell the strange tales of nature. It's fun. Be warned. Sometimes nature can be very nasty, but the hosts <laughs> will guide you through safely. That's our aim. That, yep. that, that sounds about right. Yeah, I like it. Pretty good. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Jim, for the Thanks, review. If Jim. you want to leave your own review, you guys can head over to uh, you know your Apple podcast player and leave a five-star review there or wherever you listen. Uh, it means a lot to us when you uh, leave those reviews, and we love reading them uh, either on the show or you know to ourselves before we go to bed or, or whatever. Makes so thanks, everybody. All righty. Now, I'm going to take you... A little bit like Kirk, we're going to go out on a walk. I want you, we're out in the woods, maybe near a wetland somewhere. We're east of the Rocky Mountains. And as we're walking through, springtime's in the air. Maple sap is running. The Sounds great. The buds have begun arriving on the plants. The chickadees are singing, spring's here, spring's here. But there's still snow on the ground. So, but you notice that in this snowbank, in like this pile of snow, there seems to be like a plant just growing up through the snow. Like uh-huh. there's a little bit of ground near it. That's how bizarre is that, right? Like there's still ice on the ground, there's still snow. And you look closer and you see like this somewhat 
tall, bulbous, mottled, like anywhere from two to four inch flower. It's kind of mottled purple. And it looks... When you say, like, honestly, got like a flower, not just like leaves, it's a flower? It's similar to like a peace lily flower. So it kind of is like a cup with a uh, spherical in the scent in the center like around the leaves not a spherical but yeah thank you cylindrical we'll go with that uh so you get closer against my advice and you take a whiff of this flower oh i love smelling flowers this (laughs) sounds like a great experience what could possibly go wrong and you smell skunk So today I'm talking about skunk cabbage, which is an ephemeral flower and plant that actually grows around where we are, uh, anywhere east of the Rocky Mountains in North America. Um, And one of the things that makes this plant, this ephemeral, so special is it is one of the first flowers in the forest and wetland areas to actually bloom. So it is a sign that spring is around the corner, um, which is just so exciting because I love spring. I have really been in a spring mode, so this is why I chose this today. Now, skunk cabbage is one of the very few thermogenic plants, which means that it's able to generate its own heat to melt the ice and snow surrounding it. Uh, so it's, it's a warm-blooded it, plant. It's a warm-blooded always, plant. <laughs> this has always blown my mind. Like, I know. I, uh, keep it's, going. I want to hear just, more. Uh, so it's able to generate that heat through and melt the ice and snow surrounding it. So that way it flowers first and gets pollinated by those first insects that are also just beginning to emerge. And the skunk smell is actually what attracts its pollinators to it. That's already crazy that they are generating the heat around the snow. But in order to generate, it has to be able to generate heat, right? So the heat is anywhere from 20, is about 22 degrees Celsius, which translates to 71 degrees Fahrenheit around the flower to melt all that snow and ice. Oh my, shut up. Like that is crazy. So you could just like... like get close to a skunk cabbage and take your shirt off in the nice room temperature air. I mean, if you can stand the skunk smell, <laughs> sure, why not? I mean, your sweater, uh, your I, sweater is what I meant, not your shirt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're just going to let that one slide. Um, so many places to go with that one. But yeah, I wow, I didn't realize that it got that warm, right? That much warmth. And I've, I've heard about them generating warmth and I think in the back of my mind, I was, I was kind of like, really like is it just i mean do they actually making that much heat or is it like a little effect but that's that's it's major a lot of heat and that's it, and that's while the rest of the air around it is still around freezing you know right uh, yeah. anyway so is there any so do you know do you look up like what the mechanism is that causes that yeah so what it does is it makes um Well, it doesn't make it, but when it's going through cellular respiration, it uh, uses um, 
cyanide resistance to melt its way through. So I don't know what that means. I also didn't know what that meant. So I didn't know what like cellular just, respiration is. You just but. said it with authority, <laughs> like oh, I'm just gonna say this and they'll be like, oh great. Oh okay. great. Yeah. They totally okay. know what so that is. Resistance, of course. Rachel, I was with you as far as cellular respiration and then you lost me. <laughs> <laughs> oh good. Well here's so, the thing. Everyone can go look that up maybe. So part You're of really interested. So part of well, I didn't know. I I'm starting to kind of understand what is happening there. Okay. So what we do with our cells when we are going through our cellular respiration, it keeps up our body temperature because going through that process produces a lot of heat. Right, so right. what happens is when the plant starts going through doing its cellular respiration but is how it works pretty more or less i'm not saying but with extra cyanide yeah now with 25 percent more cyanide cellular respiration so ultimately like the breakdown of the metabolic heat released is how you and i all stay warm but it's also how the skunk cabbage stays warm so what's so fascinating because most plants are not generating heat through that so the fact that this one plant did it's uh, one of very few thermogenic plants nice which is really crazy because it's one of the first plants it gets pollinated by insects and it's starting that are starting to emerge as well and those would be like the scavenging flies the stone flies and some of the early bees um the smell of the skunk also is thought to potentially deter large animals from disturbing or damaging the plant because if you break off a leaf that also releases that skunk smell um this plant is also really interesting because its roots are contractile roots which means that they go down further into the earth and as they go further into the earth they start to contract and as they contract the stems of the leaves of like the plant itself actually sink further into the into the wet mud that they're in. So, so the it's plant like gripping the earth with its roots it's and kind of gripping. Clenching. Exactly. What? So technically instead of most plants they grow upward, skunk cabbage grows downward. Cuz it's and pulling upward. it sort of kind of upward, but most of it most of the growth is in the roots and pulling the stems down into the earth and Weird. it happens more and more oh so wait year. wait hold on make sure i have this right so it's it's does it keep on doing it more and more so like the stem keeps on sinking further and further and further the bigger the plant gets like, yep oh that's so it stays weird. like the same amount above the ground it just gets deeper and deeper into the earth exactly which makes really old skunk cabbage almost impossible to dig up because so it's, it's not so that deep. the roots are growing down, which they probably are, mm-hmm. but it's that as they grow, go down, they're also pulling the plant down underground with it, and then more is having to grow up above ground. That is exactly that is weird, but like why not? I mean, why not? it's it's like what I talked about. It's like and, and Victoria was asking why have these fruit that a lot of animals can't eat. It's like if something can can exist and works, like it's probably gonna. Why not? That you know? is super, super cool. Super yeah. cool. So that's what I have for this week. So we're going to take a break and we'll be back with Victoria. Victoria. <laughs> 
All right. We are back from our break. And uh, Kirk, you started us out on a ship today, and I'm going to get us yeah. back on a ship. But this time, instead of with Great. the conquistadors, we're going to be with the Vikings. Ooh, oh. that seems like a much better time. Yeah, uh, well. Does it? Does um, it? <laughs> I don't know if you know my ancestors that well, Rachel. You might. Mm, it's Maybe a mixed not. bag. So there's a lot of, a lot of legends and uh, conceptions and misconceptions about the Vikings. But one thing that I think everybody can agree on is that they did some pretty amazing feats of exploration and navigation. So they yep. discovered and settled Iceland. They uh, put a colony on Greenland. And they also made it as far as North America, to what they called Vinland, which I think was... Uh, Labrador or Newfoundland. I meant to look that up and then I forgot. One of those. Yeah, it's that, 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 east, that yeah. eastern coast of Canada. Northeastern coast of Canada. And they did all this in the 8th through 11th centuries. So they were really expert navigators. Uh, they used the sun and the stars. What they did not use was a magnetic compass because although those had been invented by the Chinese as early as the 2nd century BCE, they were not available in Europe until the late 12th century. So these guys were going without the compass, but there is some tantalizing evidence they may have had another tool in their navigational tool belt. And oh, this yeah. was called the sunstone. I have no so idea what cool. this is. Oh, they're so cool. Yeah. Well, one, one thing that the Vikings did leave behind was a pretty rich written history, sagas and various other documents. And there are several texts that mention this sunstone. Uh, none of them really say exactly what it is or describe its attributes, but a couple of them do sort of talk about how it's used. So one of the most important ones is in a saga that is about St. Olaf. It's an allegorical story. So St. Olaf visits a wise man who lives in a round rotating house. So it's sort of like one of those uh, skyscraper restaurants that <laughs> rotates We're in the around. space needle. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, they, he's there in a snowstorm and a bunch of stuff happens. But the important stuff for our story is that one of the wise man's sons, Sigurdur, predicts the location of the sun during the snowstorm. when, of course, nobody can actually see the sun. And right. Olaf uses the sunstone to confirm the location of the sun. So I'm going to quote here from this saga. It says, Then Olaf made them fetch the solar stone and held it up and saw where light radiated from the stone and thus directly verified Sigurdur's prediction. Wow, your, your Icelandic pronunciation is amazing. That sounded almost like English. Amazing, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, I, uh, I took... You know, four semesters of Icelandic in college. No, I didn't. I did. I did take one semester of Anglo-Saxon, though. So, right. All right. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's not relevant. <laughs> but uh, cool. So you might think that this was just a, a sort of a legendary thing, but sunstones are also mentioned in the inventories of several churches and monasteries from 15, uh, 14th and 15th century Iceland and Germany. So it seems that it was an actual thing, but for a long time, nobody knew what it was or how it worked. We still don't know for sure, but there are some pretty strong theories now. And the strongest theory is that it literally was a stone, in fact, a crystal, that can polarize light. 
Uh, and the strongest okay. candidates for what crystal it is is called Iceland spar. Uh, and that is a, a type of calcite, which is a very common mineral, but it's a clear type of calcite crystal. And because of the way the crystal is structured on the inside, on the molecular level, um, and polarized light, like sunlight that passes through it, will split into two planes of polarization. And what that means on a practical level is when you look through the crystal, images are doubled through it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to say that optics is not a real strength of mine. And I, I launched into research for this topic <laughs> without really knowing what I was getting into. And I, it took a lot longer than I anticipated. But here's, here's what I came away understanding. So the way this might work to use, to use the sunstone to find the sun is if you draw, there are a couple ways to do it, but the, the way that is easiest to describe is if you draw a dot on one side of the crystal, and you look at the sky through the other side of it. So you can see the dot, and it's on the other side of the crystal from you. Right. So you're looking at the dot, and it's doubled because you're seeing it through the crystal. And you want to try to look at the brightest part of the sky, and you slowly move the crystal side to side. And as you do that, the dots are going to slightly change in color or intensity as the polarization of the light changes as you move it. Um, and when the dots are exactly the same color then the crystal is pointing at the sun. And they've done experiments to show that this can be used to actually figure the position of the sun to within one to two degrees, which is quite close. That's very accurate. Wow. And this works best when uh, in the higher uh, latitudes, when the sun is low on the horizon or even slightly below the horizon, but still illuminating the sky. So like during a polar summer, for example, when it never gets completely dark, but the sun does dip below the horizon. Mm -hmm. um, or, and when the sun is like lightly obscured by clouds. So these are conditions that the Vikings probably would have encountered quite frequently on their voyages. Um, and this method can also be used to keep track of the time of day, which is why a church or a monastery would have wanted to have one because they need to know when to say their prayers. Right, of course. Uh, it's very important. Yes. And let me tell you, when you see the Vikings coming over the horizon, you should probably be saying your prayers. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, uh, that, that the stone won't help at that point, but yeah. So all of this was a lot of speculation until 2013. Oh. And in 2013, a British ship was, shipwreck was found in the, in the English Channel off the island of Alderney. And this was a ship from 1592. And in the shipwreck, they found a crystal of Iceland spar, and it was close to other navigational tools. So there is some real evidence that not only was Iceland, star, Iceland spar the sunstone of legend, but um, it might actually have remained in use even after magnetic compasses became widespread in Europe. Um, and you can imagine it would still be useful to find out exactly where the sun is, even if you know exactly where true north is. Um, yeah. So the Vikings use crystals to to find the sun, but not in a magical way, in a science way. That is so cool. And actually, you're inspiring me to look. Uh, I can buy a big chunk of calcite direct from China for 12 bucks on eBay. So do it. What I'm hearing is we're going to be doing I, I some science do experiments. <laughs> so cool. Thanks for sharing that.
Yeah, that's really cool. Like, I've never heard of that, but the as soon as you started talking about Sunstones, I'm like, oh, I'm going into how to train your dragon times. This is going to be so much fun. <laughs> and, oh, man. Uh, I is Does the Sunstone come up in How to Train Your Dragon? Not I so much. I saw that movie a long time ago, so I don't remember. The books are quite uh, much more detailed, but I don't yeah. recall there being a Sunstone in those. Okay. Well, no, I'm not sure... so much. If any of our listeners are How to Train Your Dragon fans, they will let us know on social media. That's just so fascinating. Navigation. And I think that's about all we have for this week. So we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange. A yellow flag has been thrown. Yellow flag has been thrown. There's a mass foul. 35 degrees Celsius is like 90 Fahrenheit approximately. That's, That's true. What's your source? I have a couple, so I'm going to find another one to make sure. One of them sucks. One of them does suck. Some website done you wrong. How dare they? Someone is wrong on the internet. (gasps) That's so rare. And we're going to cut all this out. Yep, sorry. Mm -hmm. That's fine. People would probably find it pretty amusing.